Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay. To manipulate his heart. Okay, so let me, let me read this, these couple of verses for you again. And the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I don't know how exactly that works. I don't know how you see all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time as the fastest slideshow ever. I'm not really sure how it went down, but somehow um, the devil showed, uh, showed Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So here, here's the temptation, right? All authority in heaven and earth. It's all mine. All these kingdoms are mine. And I will give them to you if you will but bow down and worship me. What Satan is coming after here is his heart. And when I say Jesus's heart, what do I mean by that? Well, because I mean, clearly it's not like his actual cardiac muscle, right? I mean, it's not the actual fleshy thing that's thumping around like the, like in the temple of doom, right? And, um, and that's, that's not what is, what is happening here. The heart in the scripture is the seat of our desire. The seat of our desire and affection. Listen to this from Psalm 37. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So it's what we're, it's what we're after. It's what we're pursuing. It's what we're longing for. It's what we have, it's what we have affection for. It's what, it's what we love. And this is a major theme in the Bible, the heart and what's happening with the heart and how God wants our heart. Because listen closely, this is the pattern here that Satan knows well and that still affects our lives quite significantly today. Heart, uh, our heart, our desire, our affections and trust and worship are all closely intertwined because we worship what we trust to give us what we desire. Let me say that again. We worship what we trust to give us our desire. And then, ultimately, we become what we worship. We worship what we trust to give us what we desire. And ultimately, we become like what we worship. And this is how it's actually supposed to be. This is actually, we were actually created for this. Think about this. In the garden, we were created in the image of God, enjoying God's provision, his care, his glory. He says, all, everything in here, everything in the garden is, is for you to be able to eat. 
You can have it for, fo for food. You can work the garden. You can participate with me in creation. Your, your toil and your, uh, and your working in the garden will be a joy, and I will provide food for you to eat. And so we have desires of our hearts that come from our desire for God, our desire to see him provide, our desire to see him create, our desire to see his glory. That is built within us. Those are good things that if things had gone like, like we would have hoped and like they were planned, that, uh, that we would forever just be enjoying God in his provision and becoming more like him as we see him providing and being good and generous and loving like a father to his children. Our desires have been given to us. The fact that we have desires is ultimately a desire for God. So if the desires of our heart were built into us by the image of God itself, this is all great and fantastic. Let's just follow our desires wherever they tell us to go. We can make lots of Disney movies, and we'll all be happy. But this all got out of whack in Genesis chapter 3 when, when sin entered into the world. When we see Satan first, his first and greatest temptation of all mankind is to tempt us away from this understanding that our desires are a desire for God, that he is the one that provides, that he is the one who brings glory, that he is the one that brings family, that he is the one that our hearts should long for, and that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him, as Jeff prayed today, the prayer that St. Augustine so famously wrote. And, and Satan tempts us away from that, and he comes to Adam and Eve, and he says, all these things that are in your heart, your desire for life to the full. Is God really the one that can provide all that? And so instead, he says, you, Adam and Eve, you should take on your own initiative, your, your, own, uh, your, your own strength, your own creativity, and then turn to something that actually can provide those things for you. Look at this fruit of the garden here. I know it's supposed to be forbidden, but you take it upon yourself to seek something else out that will give you the desires of your heart. And now, Satan has Jesus exactly in the same place where he had Adam and Eve. Jesus, who is the representative head of all humanity, has him in the same place where he had Adam and Eve. You're promising something that will give him all that he desires. Because Satan knows that Jesus has come to inaugurate the kingdom. When, when Jesus begins his earthly ministry right after this, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Satan knows that Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of God. And so he is attacking the desire of Jesus. You said you wanted to bring the kingdom. Well, here it is. Here it is right here. I can give it all to you. All you have to do is turn your heart, your desire, and affection away from God and find the fruit of your desire in me. It's what you want. Here it is. I'll show it all to you. He's attacking the heart of Jesus. And there's a two-prong attack here. Now remember, as we go through this, 
as we peel back the layers of what the what the devious of what the devious person of Satan is doing, remember, this is what he does in our lives as well. That's why we're going through this sermon series, right? Is to see how Jesus was tempted. This Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way, just like we are, but yet did not sin. We're seeing how Satan came after him, so we can also see how he comes after us. So here's the two-prong attack of how Satan comes after Jesus's heart. First, he misdirects the desire. Okay, the desire is real. The desire for the kingdom, the desire for God, that's all, that is all real and good. But he misdirects it. And he tries to get Jesus to settle for something lesser. Satan offered him the kingdoms of this world rather than the kingdom of God. He said, I will give you all authority and all of their glory. It will all be yours. But Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of God. And Satan is offering him something lesser. C.S. Lewis said this. Okay, this is two weeks in a row. We quote C.S. Lewis. We're on a streak here. He says this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Satan is offering the glory of all of these kingdoms, and it's lesser than the kingdom of God. Satan is offering less, but it seems like more because it's bright and shiny, and it's right in front of us. So first, he misdirects the desire. And then second, he misdirects the, 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 I'm sorry, he misrepresents the person, achievement, or thing that can fulfill that desire. So he, he twists the desire itself. And then when we're looking about to see who can fulfill that desire, he misrepresents who can actually fulfill that. Because what Satan just said is, look at all these kingdoms. All authority has been given to me. I can give you all of these kingdoms. That's not true. There's, there's nowhere in the scripture that says all of the kingdoms of the earth have been delivered to Satan. He's a squatter. He doesn't own anything. He can't give it away. He doesn't have the authority or power to be able to do that. He says, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. Liar. That's not true. Paul calls him the prince of the kingdom of the air. The heir? He owns nothing. And he's promising all of these great things. So he's promising Jesus, hey, you have a desire to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Great. Here's the kingdoms. I have the authority. I can give it to you. And this is where the fruit of these kind of temptations go. That the ways that Satan proposes bringing about the kingdom actually bring death not life. The promises of the temptation that he is bringing don't bring about the fruit and the joy that he is promising. They bring about death and brokenness. And this is the same pattern. You're like, Dan, we've talked about this. Yes, it's the same pattern. 
over and over again. It's the same thing that Satan said in the garden. And instead of being on a trajectory of glory where we were with God, of seeing him provide, knowing him as our father, finding our rest in him, and growing ever more and more in our knowledge and love of him, and on this great and glorious trajectory of with God that what Satan promised Adam and Eve, they put us on a different trajectory that has led to where the earth is now. Satan's promises put us on a different course that end with the fruit of death. Now, here in this case, Satan says, I'm the one who can give you all of these things. But he is equally happy for you to substitute anything in the place of God for your, the provision of your desires. Anything. He's not as concerned as it about being him. What he wants you is not to give your affection to God. We call these other things that we substitute in, we call them idols, okay? And when we think of idols, don't think of like Survivor and the immunity idol, right? Like or, or some kind of hand-carved uh, image of a god. Those are, those are idols, and, but we're, when what we're talking about here is things that are not necessarily like a, a tiki mask. Worship created things rather than the creator. You can read about it in Romans chapter 1. And these things that we're going to turn to to try to find what God is the only one who can give us, listen, they're not necessarily bad things. As we said last week, briefly, making an idol is, is about taking something good and making it ultimate, putting it in the wrong place, putting it, trying to get from it something that it cannot give to you. John Calvin, the famous theologian, he said, the heart is a perpetual factory of idols. We just make them because we are, the image of God in us is longing for only what God can fulfill. And if we look to other, something other than God, if we don't put him primary and in his ultimate place in our lives and in the world, then nothing can fill it. So we have to create idols. None of the ones that we have are adequate, so we'll just make more. Our desires reach out to find things that will fill us because our desires have been misshapen by our sin nature from what Satan did in the garden. Our desires are twisted. We can make so many good things idols. We can make our pets idols. I cannot tell you how, over the course of the last two decades of ministry, I have talked to folks and asked them, hey, gosh, we haven't seen you at church in a while. Like, is everything okay? Just missing you around the families? And they're like, yeah, we got a new puppy, and it's hard to uh, be away from that, you know, because they might tear something up. So we just really haven't been coming for the last couple of months. It's a dog, okay? That's sort of the backwards of God, right? That's, this is not... This is not what should be dictating our lives. That's not how any of this works, right? Um, or, yeah, you know, I just, it's Sunday is my only day to kind of sleep in. and Or sometimes, you know, I, I just like to get sleep that day. Or I like to go hunting. And so hunting, I have to go on Sundays. And so I can't be a part of the community. But, but God knows my heart. Yeah, he does. <laughs> That's why he died on the cross. 
right? So, so we make so many of these good things, pets, sports, you know, sports are important, right? Especially when the Tar Heels are playing like they are right now. Sports are important for us, right? Um, it, it's okay to enjoy sports, but our, but our watching of sports should not dictate our mood or how we treat our families. It, it makes no sense as to why how children playing with a round ball and a hoop should, should dictate our attitudes and how, whether we honor our families or whether we speak harshly to them. It makes no sense. We make something that's good and enjoyable something ultimate. Right? We, our intellect, our beauty, our car, our pride, our politics, video games, even our children, we can take these great things and make them into idols. We We'll say things jokingly, perhaps, half-jokingly, talking about our kids and say, well, you know, I'm kind of a mama bear, right? And so I'm a Christian, but if you mess with my kids, I might not be for a little while. When we say something like that, what we're ultimately saying is, when push comes to shove, I have to take over. I have to fulfill this role. And you have then made your kids shape how you believe and how you act instead of God. Listen, your children are good things, most of them. Are, no, I'm sorry. All of them are, are, are great things. They're gifts from the Lord, the Scripture tells to us, right? And we have, been given, uh, we have been given stewardship over these children. They are so good. And you should give your life for your children in so many ways. But your children are not your God. They shouldn't be the ones that shape all of your thoughts and behaviors. Your God should be that one. Now, I recognize when I start to talk about these kind of things, there's some sort of like tension that starts to build up, right? Can you feel that? Where you start to go like, is this okay? Like, I don't know. You're challenging something that doesn't feel really good because what's happened is all of us have, have started to reposition in our lives Idols, where we've made God secondary to something else. And when they start to be challenged, we are challenging our gods. And it feels tense because we feel vulnerable. Let me give you a good example, okay? So we desire to be valued and to have meaning. That's part of who we are because we should find that in the fact that you were created with value. God created you in his image. You are an image bearer of God himself. So that brings intrinsic value to who you are. In the garden, he then called us to be co-creators with him, to work with him, and to serve with him as we, uh, as we release the potential of his creation. And so there's meaning not only in who we are, but in what we do. That is, that is, that is in, built into us through our, the image of the creator. But if we don't find our value and our meaning there, we may remove God as that provider and replace him with an idol. Let's just say for ease, we'll say our job. Not that having a job is bad. I encourage it. Uh, I encourage you to be really good at your profession. And we'll talk about vocation and ministry and all of those things over the course of our, of our time together here at Redeemer. But, but 
our job is not capable of giving us the fulfillment of our identity of value and meaning. And if you make your profession your idol, the source of your value and meaning, then you're asking something from it that it cannot give. And so you keep working at it. You overwork, even at the expense of your family. And then if at ever you start to get in wavy places in your profession, you start to perhaps cut some corners, perhaps work the books just a little bit, and little sins start to grow into bigger sins that start to move you into place that's where you lose trust with your colleagues at work as well, and there's distance in your relationships at home, in your marriage, in your, in your children start to break down as well, and you live with anxiety about not achieving more, and you live with anxiety about how much you already have on your plate. That's what happens when we make our profession our idol. It promises great and glorious things and then leaves you empty and broken. And listen, Satan is good at his job of misguiding and misdirecting. Most modern popular philosophy and morality begins with the idea of following your heart. Follow your heart. Your heart will lead you where it needs, where, where you should go. Follow the desires of your heart. I just watched a superhero movie. I'm not going to tell you which one it is, just in case you haven't watched it, and I'm honoring you in that way. But there's a group of friends, superhero friends, okay? And they disagree on how to handle a situation. In the end, some of them abandon this group of sort of the, that where they're really close-knit together, pretty much a family. Some of them abandon the others. Some of them fight each other and try to kill each other. One of them stabs one of them in the back with a giant sword. Um, another one ends up committing suicide. And after all of this situation is obser- observed, the sentimental moral moment, one of the characters says, you know, I know that was hard. But everyone did what their heart told them to. And in the end, that's what matters. No, they tried to kill each other. And one of them committed suicide. That is not what matters. That is not what matters at all. What matters is what is good and what is right and what actually brings about truth and actually brings about love and actually brings about joy. That's what matters. Not following their heart. Their heart is what caused the whole problem. We make an idol out of our desires themselves. Because here's the problem. If we say, follow your heart, and your heart will lead you where it needs to go, the problem is Jeremiah 17, 9, where God reveals this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So we can't even trust our own desires to lead us in the right way. So then where do we turn? If we can't, if we can't trust our heart, if, if our desires have been warped, where do we turn? We turn where Jesus turns. Look at verse 8. This is how Jesus answered Satan. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. We turn back to the one that we were created to find our identity in. We, we turn back to the way that he has called us to engage in this life that he gave us. Your heart is not your God. God wants your heart. Your desires, your affections, your trust, 
your actions in response. These are the things that God wants. Our God is not first a God of good behavior. Our God is a God who wants your love like a father wants your love. This, the center of our lives in Christ is that when we become a Christian, it's not simply a system of beliefs or a pattern of behavior. It's a reorienting of our lives to put God as the primary pursuit of our every day. Christ's work on earth, when he said that repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent to turn away from the rule and the sovereignty of God, to turn away from the world into the sovereignty of God, to turn into the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. A return to the garden before sin, a return to the proper place of all things, a return to the sovereignty of God and the trajectory of glory for us and all creation a return to an ordering that leads to flourishing rather than war. This is what it means to become a Christian. This is what it means for us to to pursue Christ. And when I use these words like pursue, I always want to qualify them to say, no, friends, we cannot earn our salvation. That No, we cannot earn the favor of God. No, this is not just a matter of going, look, God wants you to behave yourself, and then he's going to lavish love on you. Because at, at, at the heart of what Christ has done, he has come to us to bring grace, an undeserved grace, that even your affections are misplaced, and there's no way that you're going to be able to behave well enough to, to please and to impress God. That grace is about forgiveness. It's about mercy. It's about not getting what it is that you deserve and then calling you into a new life, a new place with the presence of the Holy Spirit to help guide you so that you don't have to just trust your own primal urges or what you think your heart is telling you, but that God himself has promised to be with us and the Holy Spirit has been given to us to guide us in the ways of righteousness and truth. This is life in Christ. And listen, when we're called, when we're called to follow Christ, God is not calling you to, to lose your desires. He's not calling you to not be passionate. He's not calling you to, um, to somehow become kind of like a, an, an automaton, a robot, right? And just go, I just trust God in everything. I mean, that he is, he is, he is not telling you to lose your desires. He's calling you to align them properly where he can fulfill them fully. It's the lie of Satan that says that he's not able to do that. Just listen listen to to this passage from Matthew chapter 6 that is probably very familiar to you. But just in light of what we're saying here this morning, listen to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more important than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat and what shall we drink and what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He's not telling you to stop needing them. He's saying he knows that you need them. And then it says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He's saying, trust me, you don't, have to, you don't have to chase all of these things, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear, and be anxious about how you're paying your bills and when, how you're going to achieve and what you're going to be. Instead of pursuing those things by your own strength, seek first the kingdom and then align all the rest of these desires under our primary focus and our primary affection that is God. So we want to pursue our jobs as people of God. We don't want our jobs to become our God. We want to parent as we are children of a great God who has revealed himself as our father. We don't want to parent by making our children our God. See, it seems like just a slight switch, just a little bit of a flip, just kind of a nuance that makes all the difference. And that's all that Satan is trying to do with this temptation is just say, you know these things are good. Just bump them up a little bit. Make them above God. And God is supposed to then serve you and serve these things to provide you with all of your idols. And instead, it's let's make God ultimate and primary and then align all of these things under The temptation that seizes us for our own glory and our own provision, our own safety, has caused us to reorder our entire lives around affections other than God and to trust other means for the fulfillment of those affections. Satan, misdirect the desire, misrepresent the one who can fulfill that desire. Lent is the time for us to start to look at our lives, to ask for the Holy Spirit to help to reveal what we have made an idol. What, what brings us the most fear of losing is probably one of your primary idols. But Jesus talks a lot about, uh, about our affection and our heart, and he ties it in with money. He talks about money a lot. This isn't a sermon on giving. We'll, we'll, we'll give that to you more fully some, some other time. But if the scripture tells us that, our, that God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to give as, as a minimum standard of giving 10% of what you bring in. That's what God has told us to do. How are we doing with that? Like, again, this isn't a, this isn't a, let me guilt you into giving money. That's not what this is. And if you think that is, don't give a dime to this church. But the reason God does that is because money is the thing that is so easy, uh, easily switched, where Jesus says you can't serve God and money at the same time because it's just so easily switched where we think that money is what can provide us with everything. And so what we need is more money. And so whatever we need to do to get more money, that shapes our behavior, right? Because money becomes the God, and then it, it shapes our behavior about how we should get it, how we should hoard it, how we should keep it. When God is saying, how about you trust me, and you give it away, and you're generous, and it seems backwards, 
but that is what's actually going to bring about the freedom and the joy that you think your money is going to buy you. It doesn't. Some of the most dysfunctional people I know are extremely wealthy. It doesn't bring about ease and comfort and peace and joy. That's what God does. And when God is first, it's okay for you to have money, but it becomes something that we learn how to spend it, how to use it, how to put it in its proper place when God is what is primary. Right? And when we start talking about these things and, and, the, and what God has told us to do starts to attack something like our, our checkbook or our, our credit card, we start to go, whoa. Like I get, I, I, don't, I, don't, know, I don't know if I like that. I don't, I don't know if, if, that, if, if that's true. And then we start, our mind starts to go, and is, that, well, is he just trying to manipulate us into giving money? Right? You feel that? Is he just, is he just trying to, I mean, what, what's he trying to say with all that? And he doesn't know my situation. My situation is different than other people's situation. Like, I get that God told us to do that, but he knows my heart. Right? These are the things that challenge us because they attack our idols. So here's what we do during Lent. We look at these things. We learn how to be generous people. We learn how to, we learn to look and ex- explore our lives and find where the idols have taken root in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. And one, the first thing we do is we receive grace. We repent and we believe and we receive grace that God is not looking at you with a furrowed brow, but with open arms to receive you. And then we do the work to pursue God. We're not earning him, but our affections are there, and we'll do anything to be able to to please him, to be able to love him, and to know him more. And so we have the tough conversations that we have to have to untangle the things in our lives where our affections have dug deep and created uh, walls around themselves. We have the tough conversations with yourself and with others to start to to unwind that, to give God our affections. And how do we seek first the kingdom? And again, don't stop loving the things that are holy. Love your wife and your husband and your kids and your family and your job, and even your hobbies. That's okay too. Hunt. That's fine. Great. Eat those deer. That's good. But put them in their proper place. Love God first. And then he will help you love all of the good things all the more. And that comes with intentional action. To do things like give faithfully, be generous, study the word of God, clean up your business, study well as students to pursue the things of God. And I'll leave you with this. As we ask God to reorder our lives, reorder our affections around him, worship well. That's why it's so important what we do. We're not just singing songs because we like because we like melodies. You can do that to the radio, right? Why are we here? Why do we come to this table? Why do we lift our hearts up to the Lord? Is what we say every Sunday, right? Lift your hearts up to the Lord. Then why are we doing this? Because we are putting him in his proper place and we become what we worship. So worship in spirit and truth, worship with singing and liturgy and sacrament, worship together in this place, putting all things in subjection to Christ. 
And as a moment of encouragement, I want you to see something really significant that's happened here. Do you remember? Satan said, I can give you all authority. I can give you all things. I can give you those things. And, and Jesus said, no, we're supposed to serve God only. And what happens in the end to Jesus? After his death and his resurrection, where he, in obedience to God, pursued us even to the cross, where he pursued us even to the tomb, and he, raised, he is raised again on the third day. And he appears to his disciples and he says, in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God actually fulfilled what it is that Jesus was hungering for and pursuing. What Satan promised and couldn't deliver Jesus didn't repeat the sin of Adam and Eve and instead lived a life of joy and obedience to God. And in the end, he received all that his heart desired. May we do the same. May we root out these idols. May we pursue the Lord. May we seek first his kingdom. And may we tell Satan where he can take his lies. Pray with me. Lord, this is, this is such a complex topic today, such a, um, such a deep topic today where we're trying to root out where things have been twisted and, and even our, our measuring tools for knowing whether it's straight or whether it's crooked, even our tools are bent. And so we don't even know what we should be doing. We're so patterned now after this world and we need intervention. We need your grace to come in to show us what is straight, to show us what is right, to, to show us where our affections have wandered, to show us how the pursuit of our own desires has caused sin in our lives and pain and brokenness. And teach us, Lord. Teach us by your Holy Spirit and your word and, and your community how, how to seek first your kingdom how to make you primary, not just one part of our lives, but the focus of our lives, because you are the creator of all things, and you are good, and you are holy, and you are pure, and you are loving, and you are our Father. Lord, help us to turn our affections to you, to give you the desires of our hearts. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.